Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop for caregivers' practical tips to cope. And this particular workshop focuses on caregivers and the needs of caregivers. And we welcome others to be on the call as well. Um, however, we are, you will hear lots of information for caregivers. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is um, a credit to the collaboration and to all of your interest in the program that we have so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 498 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Kenya, Tunisia, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's program was made possible by Boringer Engelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Lilly. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program and for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. You did get information from Cancer Care, and in that information there is an evaluation form. And I would ask you all to take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, you are our best consultants about programs that we should do going forward. And we are planning our programs for 2015. And so your suggestions come at a perfect time in terms of your, what you would like us to do. And indeed, the program today is one that many of you have asked as caregivers that we should offer programs for caregivers. And so um, we do take your, we take your advice and really try to implement very quickly what you, what you recommend. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Harry Raftopoulos, and Dr. Raftopoulos is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hofstra North Shore, Long Island Jewish School of Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, Division of Hematology Oncology, NSLIJ, Co-Director, Lung Cancer Center for Excellence, NSLIJ, Cancer Institute, Monterey Cancer Center, North Shore LIJ Health System. And Dr. Raftopoulos is going to address an overview of cancer and the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Raftopoulos. Carolyn, thank you very much for inviting me. I feel very honored to be a participant in this very valuable program. And also thank you for giving me the very uh, difficult task of providing a, a two-minute overview of cancer. Uh, descriptions of cancer often include words such as fast-growing or aggressive, uh, but I think the best sentence to describe cancer is that it represents a growth of cells that is beyond the normal growth of a human body. Sometimes normal body processes such as wound healing may have more rapid growth than some cancers. The difference is that it is under the body's control. Cancer can be slow-growing, it can be fast-growing, it can be localized, it can have spread, can be symptomatic, can, uh, there can be no symptoms. Many factors uh, can contribute to cells becoming cancerous, from hereditary factors to toxins such as cigarettes. Uh, cancer is also not just one disease, but really a broad term for many different types. And we usually classify cancer according to the organ from which it originated, irrespective, irrespective of where it has spread. Likewise, uh, treatment is usually based on the organ of origin and may uh, involve many things. May, uh, treatment may just be observation for some uh, very low-grade cancers. May include surgery, may include radiation, may include chemotherapy, may include target therapy, immune therapy, or combination of these modalities. And I, by no means is this list exhaustive. So in essence, I'm uh, driving the point that cancer is a complex process with complex management strategies. Uh, to give you an example, in my field, uh, lung cancer, there's been a, a, an explosion of new target therapies in the last five years. And in the last year, immunotherapies, uh, uh, treatments that target the immune system, appear to offer promising options. 
but it's not every patient who's eligible for every therapy. Uh, things are becoming more selective and more targeted, and decisions are becoming even more complex. And perhaps that's a good thing, because it's all, always better to have more options rather than fewer options. So you know, then that, that brings me to the role of the cancer patient's caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team. Um, in my mind, this begins uh, on day one or even before day one, because as I've outlined before, patients are faced with a devastating diagnosis and then have to face a barrage of information in order to understand their condition as well as to make treatment choices. It's therefore crucial that patients have at least one caregiver present with them during consultations to help put together and digest all the information. I, I always do my utmost to ensure my patients comprehend the information presented and try and talk directly to the patient, but often the anxiety of the situation prevents them initially from fully comprehending, and having an extra pair of ears around is extremely useful. Occasionally, I'll have a patient show up solo for the initial visit, and I find this very concerning, and I always encourage them to get their loved ones involved. Um, often it is, unfortunately from within, it's often our healthcare professionals who think they are tough enough to go it alone, and, and unfortunately no one is. Uh, next, uh, during therapy, it's um, also extremely helpful for caregivers to communicate uh, to the healthcare team any observations about the patient's conditions that may have gone unnoticed. Uh, this may range from detailing the amount of pain medication used so that adjustments can be made, you know, something that if you're in pain, you may not be keeping complete track of how many pills you've taken, uh, to noting that the patient maybe forgot to mention he or she had significant nausea after treatment. Uh, sometimes if it's a couple of weeks before, one may forget, but you know, our goal is to deliver therapy with the least amount of side effects possible. And if we know that information, we can make adjustments. And lastly, maybe noticing things that the patient themselves may not notice. Uh, an example would be that perhaps someone uh, is not walking uh, uh, as well as they used to. And uh, it may lead to early intervention that may prevent nerve damage. Next. Um, I want to address a uh, issue uh, about the, it, it's all well to say that we need our caregivers to communicate about um, their loved ones, but uh, there is a delicate balance of communicating with the health team and maintaining a loved one's trust. Uh, when someone is told they have cancer, in addition to the fears and anxiety about the diagnosis and treatment, often the sudden loss of control can be overwhelming. You know, many aspects of the independence are removed. You're told which appointments to go to, where to go, when to have treatment. And, and this by itself can be very devastating. Uh, so I think that caregivers should ensure that the loved one is involved in the decisions and the communications. I think to phrase this differently, I'd like to say that I. Uh, we need an ally, not a spy. And uh, a recent example of a patient of mine comes to mind where family members during a consultation detailed point by point all the things that mom was not doing that I had previously advised, creating conflict uh, between the family members which took time to resolve. Uh, and a simpler way would have been to merely ask mom, maybe you could discuss with Dr. Raftopoulos difficulties you've been having with his recommendations so that the uh, control is still with the patient. This then allows the patient to maintain independence in a small way. Every small uh, aspect counts. So um, in conclusion, uh, caregivers play a crucial role in communicating with the healthcare team during all aspects of care, especially when done in a collaborative fashion. Thank you, Carolyn.
Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Raftopoulos. That was really excellent and um, just very informative as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Margaret Bevins. And Dr. Bevins is CDR, United States Public Health Service, clinical nurse specialist, scientist, program director, scientific resources, nursing research and translational science, nursing department, National Institutes of Health Clinical Center. And Dr. Bevins is going to address who is a caregiver, caring for the person with cancer, helping to manage your loved one's treatment, and the role of a caregiver in adherence. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Bevins. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. I would also like to take this opportunity to welcome all of the participants who are also on the call. Whether you are a healthcare provider or a person with cancer or the caregiver of someone with cancer, you recognize the importance of the caregiver and made the time to be on the call today to learn more. The caregiver is usually a family member or a friend who has stepped up with a commitment to support their loved one who has been diagnosed with cancer. And building on a point you just heard, although the caregiver is often identified maybe as one individual who's providing the most care to that cancer patient, it can also include other family members or friends who may not play the, might not be involved as much as others, but could be helpful at many times during the cancer treatment. By reaching out today, you're here to learn more about that caregiver role and you are taking a significant step in coping successfully with this cancer disease and its impact on your life as well as the lives of others. So as you just heard from Dr. Raftopoulos, cancer can vary in intensity depending on its natural course and its treatment. This course often begins with the diagnosis of cancer and is often quickly followed by the start of treatment. Sometimes the treatment is administered in an outpatient setting such as a clinic, and other times the patient may need to be admitted to the hospital. Just as the treatment and the clinical needs of the patient might vary over time, so might the types of support that the caregiver provides. So generally, caregivers offer support in three major ways. First, as the caregiver, you might offer direct support and this might include administration or giving of the medications, performing care for an intravenous or IV line, or dressing changes. This new knowledge comes primarily from the healthcare team and might include going to a class to develop a new skill, or it might just be reviewing a new medication with the doctor or the nurse, or even the pharmacist. Although the cancer patient may be able to manage their own care and take their own medications at this point without assistance, the caregiver is still a valuable partner. For example, as you heard mentioned previously, if the patient isn't feeling well, sleeping more, or maybe feeling sick to their stomach, the caregiver can take an active role in helping to track the timing of the medications and to manage some of the symptoms with those as-needed, or as we say, PRN medications. These are important aspects of care that need to be communicated to the healthcare team, and the patient may not always remember the details that need to be shared around their medications. For all of the new skills a caregiver might be learning, being well-informed will build confidence and a sense of mastery reducing everyone's anxiety, and ultimately providing the best care to the cancer patient. So the second essential way to support the patient might be to coordinate care and generally manage life. Specific examples of this might be transportation to and from appointments or communicating with other family and friends or even some extra household maintenance. Roles and responsibilities among family members often shift in response to how your loved one is feeling. For example, yard work or grocery shopping may be something you haven't done on a regular basis but have to now do more often. This shift, however, may create feelings of uncertainty, which can then create tension and conflict. So talking with each other and negotiating roles and responsibilities can help everyone feel better about contributing while reducing your burden as a caregiver. 
The third type of support is emotional support. And providing emotional support can often meet the needs of both the person with cancer as well as you as the caregiver. While giving your attention to your loved one and taking time to listen, you may realize that you share some of the same concerns. These concerns might be related to fears of the future or just balancing expectations. Leaning on each other and sharing your worries and concerns can help you feel closer to one another and reassure you, reassure you both that you're not alone. The support you provide, though, will fluctuate, and this in itself can create a sense of uncertainty, although this is a normal characteristic of the caregiver experience, but often still makes the situation feel more stressful. Often caregivers will say, I wouldn't have it any other way, referring to the decision to be a caregiver for someone they love. And this fits with a lot of the studies that have gone on to demonstrate that caregivers report what we call benefits in the role. They report stronger relationships with the patient and a sense of meaning and purpose that stems from being able to help another person. But that being said, it's important that you don't get overburdened or isolated. You are encouraged to accept support from others and even reach out for help. That might seem obvious when the intensity of caregiving is high, but when the intensity is less, you should still consider some very healthy self-care practices that will build your physical and emotional strength and ultimately your resilience whenever possible. So we are giving you permission to refuel and use your time wisely to take care of yourself as well as the cancer patient. So in summary, taking on the role of a caregiver for someone with cancer can provide benefits as well as challenges in your life. However, taking time to be informed, working as a partner with your loved one, and building your own resilience will help you successfully adjust and cope. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share with you today. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Bethan. That was really very helpful to everyone on the call. and lots of information, and I know there will be questions future in the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next presenter is uh, Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is a, a nurse. She's a um, social worker, and she's a doctor of public health. So she has a bit of a, her own team, actually. And um, she is a clinical research manager, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to address keeping track of important papers, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, coping with the stresses of caregiving, and self-care tips. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Palos. Thank you, Carolyn, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be here with our panel of knowledgeable speakers and, of course, with you, our listeners. Our two previous speakers provided an excellent foundation for understanding how important the role of the caregiver is in communicating with the healthcare team and, and also explaining who is considered a caregiver and then how caregivers are so important in promoting adherence to treatment or medication schedules. One important message that evolved from both speakers is that being a family or informal caregiver requires knowledge, skills, time, and commitment. So in brief, for our uh, discussion today, our superheroes are our caregivers. Being an informal or family caregiver can be a taxing and yet rewarding experience. Caregiving can bring unique stressors, challenges, and losses such as when traditional family roles change or treasured rituals change, but it can also be an opportunity to establish unique strengths, form or reshape new relationships, and achieve new victories. Caregiving is a dynamic experience, particularly for a chronic illness such as cancer. There are acute and chronic stages which involve several transitions across the trajectory of the illness. And with those traditions, the needs of our loved one that has been diagnosed with cancer will change, and so will our needs or the caregiver's needs. And so as those needs change, the roles, responsibilities, and functions of a caregiver will also change. A trend that I'm sure many of you are already being affected by is the growing responsibility of taking on complex tasks 
such as what we heard about from Dr. Uh, from one of our speakers earlier about managing multiple medications. You can also be providing wound care, coordinating care for different providers, appointments and services, and then maybe even learning how to use complicated medical equipment. So in addition to these responsibilities, a caregiver is often charged with keeping track of important documents such as wills, marriages, marriage license, um, deeds and um, treatment plans, all those other important papers that, we, um, are, that are necessary during this time. And many caregivers are also juggling multiple roles while immersed in their caregiving experience, such as, of course, going to work, being a mom, being a dad, or you know, doing all the other things that go along with just normal living. So those of you caregivers listening on this call, you now have an idea of why you may feel tired, sleep-deprived, and at times distressed. And for patients and providers listening in today, now you have a glimpse of what a caregiver goes through on a daily basis. However, we also know caregivers can benefit from education and support during the various phases of the cancer experience, and that's why Cancer Care provides these types of educational sessions. We also know that, thank goodness, there's been an increase in resources available for caregivers online, in print, in the community, and through formal services such as support groups. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some of the documents and what we can do for this, uh, for, keeping, for organizing and keeping them together. Two of the major side effects, so to speak, of the cancer experience for patients, caregivers, and their loved one is the loss of control and the uncertainty that surrounds this disease. Thank goodness there's two simple mechanisms for managing these consequences, planning and organizing. So one of the first steps you want to do is identify and organize important documents that are needed so you can develop a tailored caregiver plan. So here's some steps you can do. To begin with, you have to have a candid discussion with your loved one who has been diagnosed with cancer and ask them where they keep their important papers. Where are those marriage certificates, birth certificates, insurance policies, living wills, military records, driver's license information, and other important key documents. It's also important to gather that information needs specific to their diagnosis, their current treatment regimen, who their oncology team is, and all of those key issues that will help uh, promote that type of, of uh, coordination of care. It's also good to, uh, when you're planning to begin a list containing important telephone numbers and other contact information for representatives or services that may be needed during this time, including the primary care physician as well as the oncology team. One of the other things you're doing in, in putting these documents together is that you can outline an emergency plan, identify who will help and what their roles will be during times of emergency. So once you, all of you can agree on what documents are important and once you find out where they are and the location has been established, y'all then need to we can all agree then on a storage location. That is, where will those documents be stored or located? In a file drawer, in an attorney's office, or maybe even in a safety deposit box. So next, as a family, everyone can get together, review the documents, know where the location is, so everyone is kept in that communication loop. Because only having two people know about it sometimes is not going to be helpful um, when one of those folks, when both of them are not available to give that type of information. It's also helpful at that time when you're having those family discussions to designate the family spokesperson and the decision maker before anything happens. There's a, a, quite a few of helpful resources that can provide more details on what documents are needed and how to organize them. For example, ARP has an excellent uh, website that provides booklets, and they have an excellent little planning guide that gives you the one, two, threes of the documents and even gives some little forms that you can fill out to help you um, kind of organize all of this. You can also speak to, our, to the very skilled and knowledgeable social worker for cancer care about your needs related to organizing important documents. The second topic I'd like to address is how to involve family members, friends, and neighbors in the caregiving experience. This is particularly challenging because of the chronicity of cancer. We find that caregivers often find more support during the initial phase, that is, when someone is initially diagnosed with cancer and is going through the treatment. However, the support often lessens or disappears completely as the disease lingers, and that is when the caregiver is apt to feel the burden of being a caregiver. So what are some of the steps you can take to keep folks involved? Well, first of all, if you can, include parents, grandparents, siblings, extended family members such as cousins, aunts, 
all of those folks that maybe you don't see, maybe except at family reunions, but you can call them during times of need. So once they are engaged or they do say yes, then discuss with them what they can do and what they can't do and how much time they're willing to give. And then you can also outline what you would like to expect from them and how much time commitment would be very helpful to you. You know, they, people want to help, but it's going to be more treasured or, or more important when both of you are meeting the needs of each other. So what I'm asking with this or suggesting with this is to widen that circle of who you're asking for help. You can even ask your neighbors, people from your place of worship, or from local community centers to help. Now, sometimes people feel reluctant or maybe even a bit embarrassed about asking for help. That's, a, that's okay. That's normal. But stay focused on your goal, which is to increase your support circle for caregiving. So, you know, have those feelings, you know, enjoy them or, you know, go over them for a while and then move on and try to identify those people that you can. It's good to have caregiver meetings, whether by telephone, by Skype, by Internet, by Twitter, whichever way you want to do it. But remember, as the needs change during the phases of the experience, you know, the caregiver's functions and roles are going to change and your team members' changes, or roles are going to change. So it's a good time to, re, you know, reshape or re-identify the roles, go over the assignments, the schedules, any backup plans. And it would be good to make copies of these plans for everyone so there's clarity and communication about these important tasks. You heard me mention about the use of social media. There's excellent ways to communicate with folks pretty quickly nowadays. So there's even an online service called Lots of Hands that can help coordinate services and efforts. So you do have lots of different creative ways to keep that communication open. So just as a reminder, our families in America are rapidly changing. We have single head of household families, non-English speaking families, military families, and previously unseen groups such as our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender family. There are resources for these groups also. And once again, I'll refer you to the ARP website for specific resources for non-English speaking um, patients and, and caregivers. There's also the AT&T language line. And then for the LGBT groups, there are uh, some really good documents from the Family Caregiver Alliance, and there's also a national social service agency called SAGE that will help identify and work with caregivers. Remember, people like to help, and if given a chance, most likely they'll say yes. The expanded network of circle of caregivers help you, the caregiver, to lessen your burden. It also will help your loved one um, and your family members because they know they're going to have a happier, healthier caregiver, and it will also give them an opportunity to interact with other people in their lives. So the third area focuses on ways to cope with stressors. As we all have heard, caregiving is a demanding job. It takes a great deal of physical as well as emotional stamina to be a caregiver, particularly over a long period of time. Caregiver responsibilities can contribute to high stress levels and caregiver burden, which includes high levels of feeling distressed, fatigued, and having loss of sleep. However, as mentioned previously, studies have shown that patients' outcomes are not as positive when a caregiver is in poor, or physical, in poor physical or emotional health. So being a healthy caregiver is critical in that cancer experience. So here's a couple of things that you can do to monitor yourself for signs of stress. Are you having persistent headaches? Are there neck and shoulder tightness? Are there mood swings, crying spells, irritability, long periods of sadness, poor concentration, forgetfulness, negative attitude? Are you now having low productivity, having feelings of isolation, stomach upsets, high blood pressure? All of those are signs saying to you that, hey, these are your warning signs. I need to take care of my body. That's what your body is telling you. You need to take care of me. So in the next few moments, I'd just like to outline a few self-care methods that can help you. And by, for sure, these are not all of them, but just a few that I have found to be particularly helpful. First and foremost, make this your mantra. Pay attention to your physical and mental health. And when needed, ask for help from your uh, health care providers and seek medical advice. Find time to relax, exercise, slow down, or just pause. Just take a moment to pause. Go out and sit in the backyard or go sit somewhere and just, you know, don't even think if you, if you can do that. Just pause and just get into yourself, get into the moment. Some people call that mindfulness. 
Again, we talked about getting organized and staying organized and how important that is. One thing that I, I believe caregivers have a real problem with is saying no. You know, uh, you, you want to do all the things you did before, especially like with the holidays coming up. So learn to say no without feeling guilty. That's the last thing a caregiver needs to feel are those feelings of guilt because they don't think they're doing enough outside of being a caregiver. Stay connected with friends and stay positive. One important secret weapon that caregivers have but don't always realize it is their own strength or their family's strengths. And these are often called resilience. Many families have resilience and they just don't realize that that's what it is. It is a strength. So to make this more of a family affair, hold family meetings. Take time to honor past traditions, such as those associated with holidays or birthdays. Have a family story night and share family stories. You can even videotape the stories. These types of meetings are also an excellent opportunity to talk about creating new traditions and memories. So in closing, I just want to remind you that caregiver burden or burnout is a growing public health concern. We are seeking more attention focusing on the risks to a caregiver's physical and emotional health and the impact that an unhealthy caregiver has on the outcomes of the patient they're caring for. Caregiver burden or burnout also affects the entire family. It's a domino effect. And so the issue has become so important that I understand that November is designated as National Family Caregiver Month. So you might want to be on the lookout for PSAs that focus on the caregiver experience. So this concludes my remarks, and I'll turn it over to my colleague, Carly, who will continue the dialogue of issues important to caregivers. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Palos. That was really outstanding. And, you know, you really um, have called out the fact that this is, November is um, National Caregiver Awareness Month, and there are going to be many announcements. They've started already highlighting the needs of and the recognition of the important role that caregivers play. So, so thank you. And, and thank you for all your tips and everything. And our next speaker is Ms. Carly Mesovitz. Ms. Mesovitz is an oncology social worker. She's our caregiver program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Mesovitz is going to address coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, long-distance caregiving, Cancer Care's free psychosocial services, and support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Mesovitz. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and I'm happy to be on this call today talking to a very important group of people. So I think we can all relate that managing the stresses of everyday life can be challenging for all of us, but when you think about adding the impact of a loved one's cancer diagnosis, that can be especially taxing both for the person with cancer but also for the caregiver. So caregivers, I would really encourage you to pay attention to your loved one's physical and emotional needs, but also your own. Um, those are really important elements that can help you make the most of each day as well as special occasions that come up. Check in with yourself about what your priorities are each day, and be sure to be intentional with those things that are the most important to you. To help you cope with each day, enlist the support of friends, family, or professional support to help you make sense of what your needs are as a caregiver, and to also strategize about how you can work to get them met. Being flexible and being patient with yourself can help you to make the most out of your experience as a caregiver. And as some of uh, my co-presenters have mentioned, although we're talking a lot about the challenges of caregiving, it's equally important to remember the opportunities that can come along with this role, whether it's a clearer understanding of your loved one's needs, your own needs, a stronger connection or bond with your loved one, improved communication, or the ability to really appreciate the simple moments together. Those are really just a few of the potential opportunities. Reflecting on these often, rather than just focusing on the challenges, can really offer you a sense of hope and comfort, and that can be quite empowering for a lot of caregivers. So we're sort of hitting mid-November, and the holidays are quickly approaching, and this time of year often represents a time of celebration and connecting with loved ones, but can also be an especially difficult time for those who are impacted by cancer. Uh, Coping with caregiving during this time can be stressful. There are, are a lot of things that caregivers can do to help themselves and their loved ones maximize both holidays as well as birthdays and other special occasions. You can start by considering what each specific holiday or milestone actually means to you. What are the most important elements of the celebration? Is it really about the people? Is the place of the most importance? Does the food matter? 
Is it a specific tradition that's really the focus? Being mindful of the significance of the event rather than just the logistics can be a helpful starting place in beginning to think about how cancer can fit into the picture rather than the other way around. Planning ahead for these kind of milestones, holidays, and events can be really helpful. Anticipate these occasions before they happen. Consider what you and your loved ones can tolerate this year. Give yourself flexibility to say no, but also to create a new tradition. We know that managing expectations is such an important part of coping with a loved one's cancer diagnosis, so consider what traditions you may need to take a pass on or change this year. Establishing new holiday or birthday traditions with close family and friends may allow both the person with cancer and also the caregiver to really feel more satisfied, more present, and also more supported during these celebrations. And remember to give yourself a break. So many caregivers put pressure on themselves to be able to do it all. It's important to also validate and recognize your efforts and know that you're really doing the very best that you can. And acknowledge your feelings. They might be mixed and they might be changing along the way. The changes that you're going through as a caregiver aren't easy changes to make, but be patient with yourself, express your feelings to whoever will listen, whether it's the person with cancer or a professional form of support. Don't hesitate to reach out for that support and ask for help when you need it. Whether it's family or friends or your loved one's medical team, those can also really be helpful people to go to as they might have additional suggestions, tips, or support to help you cope with holidays and special events or even just the day-to-day -day things that come up. And when we're talking about caregivers, it's also important to remember that being a caregiver can mean so many different things. You can be a really meaningful part of your loved one's cancer experience, whether you live locally or are caring from a long distance. Caregivers who aren't local to their loved one can provide significant emotional support, a listening ear, and they can offer a sense of camaraderie and social support for their loved ones by phone, text, email or Skype, technology is certainly an advantage these days and can really help you to feel connected and in the loop. Staying in touch helps the patient to feel supported and can also help the long distance caregiver feel like they're contributing and being helpful. That layer of emotional support is often just as helpful as providing the physical care. So it's important to keep that in mind and to not minimize the role that that emotional support plays. Um, as some of my colleagues have mentioned, caregivers can also help coordinate medical appointments, get to know the medical team, and advocate for their loved one's needs, both health-related and otherwise, regardless of their physical location. Ask your loved one if they're comfortable having you be present uh, on speakerphone during a medical appointment. Send them a list of questions that you might have that might be helpful for them to discuss with their team. Again, that can help you to feel involved, can get your questions answered, but also reminds the patient that you're there for them and that you're on their side. And lastly, when it comes to long-distance caregiving, a long-distance caregiver often struggles with feelings of guilt as they wish that they could do more for their loved one with cancer. So remind yourself of all that you're doing rather than focusing only on what you can't do. Give yourself credit for the efforts that you've made and check in with your loved one to see if they have any suggestions about how you can continue to be of help to them. And again, as was mentioned earlier, remember to take care of yourself. Long-distance caregivers need support too, so reach out to a support group or contact a social worker to help you make meaning out of your unique caregiver experience. So when it comes to being a caregiver, whether it's local or long-distance or somewhere in between, uh, like my caregivers have also mentioned, it's important to take care of yourself. And that means seeking both physical and emotional wellness. And again, as others have mentioned before, seeking support and having a healthy outlet like a support group or counseling can give you a dedicated space to process your own feelings, strategize ways to manage stress so that it doesn't leave you feeling burnt out. Ask for help when you need it. It's really a sign of strength and will likely leave you feeling less isolated and less stressed. So here at Cancer Care, we provide a number of different supportive services to caregivers and to people living with cancer to help them, mention, uh, to help them manage many of the challenges that were described earlier. Cancer Care has a staff of licensed master's level oncology social workers, and all of our services are totally free of charge. We're experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arrive after a cancer diagnosis. 
Some of our cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups in the New York City area, as well as over the phone and online. And we also offer educational resources and information, just like the Connect Education Workshop you're on right now. We can provide information about other resources, how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and can sometimes offer limited financial help. Right now, here at Cancer Care, we have a very robust and thriving support group program for caregivers, and we offer a variety of these support groups for caregivers in person, over the phone, and online. So really, no matter where you are, there's support available for you. Um, we have some support groups that are focused on a specific cancer diagnosis that might have a unique set of symptoms, effects, or concerns. And then we have other groups that are more general and that are available to anyone who is caring for a person with any type of cancer. Our, care, our caregiver clients specifically have shared that they find these groups to be helpful and comforting because they normalize the challenges associated with caregiving, and they give caregivers a dedicated space to explore their feelings about cancer and caregiving and adjusting to this new role. If you're interested in participating in any of our caregiver support groups, please contact us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813 and you can talk with the social worker about finding the right fit for a support group for you. And while we might not be able to resolve all of the problems that you're facing each day, a cancer care social worker will certainly provide a listening ear and the ability to support and counsel you as you navigate your caregiver experience. Many caregivers find this to be a reassuring and comforting service that can help you to feel that you're not alone and can help you to feel more confident in your role as a caregiver. So again, contact us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. I'd like to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to listen to this important teleconference, and um, I'd like to pass things along to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Messner, Carly. That was really wonderful um, and actually very informative. And really giving very good suggestions to everybody in terms of this particular time of year, which has its own particular challenges in addition to all the caregiving challenges. So thank you. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Stephanie to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question, you just call us at the end of the call at Cancer Care, and we'll, our staff, our oncology social work staff, will be happy to address your questions. But let's see if we can take all of them now. And um, so, uh, Stephanie? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Elise and Phil F. Your line is open. Yes, hi. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for the program. Uh, I have a question. For, I'd like to get the opinion of the entire panel or whoever would want to take it. Um, I've been a caregiver now for five years. Uh, my husband was diagnosed with AML uh, five years ago this week, as a matter of fact. Uh, he had his induction phase, and his transplant was done in April of 2010. Um, I found that at the time of diagnosis, all the various organizations were falling all over themselves as far as caregivers were concerned uh, and helping and being extremely helpful. But as the years have gone on, and uh, unfortunately this last year my husband had many setbacks and it was actually more difficult year than uh, um, the year of diagnosis, uh, I found that it's very difficult to get caregiver support as the time goes on. When the diagnosis, as I said first, is Given I had tremendous support, I couldn't have asked for better. Uh, but as the years have gone on, I can't seem to find that support. Uh, I wonder what the panel thinks of that. Oh, Elise, that's an excellent question. This is really long, not just long-distance caregiving, but really long-term uh, uh, caregiving is what you're really talking about. And I'm going to ask if um, Dr. Bevins could address that first, and then I'll have the other panelists as well. But Dr. Bevins, would you like to comment on that issue? Absolutely. Um, first and foremost, um, your husband is blessed to have you there and be committed to him. So for that, um, I'm sure he shares his gratitude, but I do as well, because it is, um, it can be, I should say, often a, um, a, long, uh, a long 
long-term experience or what we might call a chronic stressor and not just something that happens and goes away very quickly. Um, so one of the things, you know, if we could have a dialogue about it, a couple things I would ask would be, um, you know, recognize that sometimes in the outpatient environment, the access or the visibility of the resources that are available at a particular agency or in a particular doctor's office may not be as um, clear as those may be on an inpatient setting. So when you're in the hospital, everybody's seeing you every day, the social workers are coming by, the nurses are there every day, and there's a lot of attention being given in that acute phase. Um, and our outpatient clinic and ambulatory care systems aren't necessarily um, set up in the same way to be as visible. So looking at the organizations like Cancer Care and others where um, you can reach out to uh, agencies or systems that are available no matter where you are is really a very important resource to activate for yourself when it comes to sort of that professional type assistance. And also in looking at resources through them that might be available in your community for more um, uh, more ready available resources. And then to, again, with family, so that's sort of the professional side of things, but sometimes the family, um, you know, in, during the most intense period of time, they're bringing food and they're there to, to do this errand or that errand for you. But as time goes on, the assumption is by uh, many family members that everything's sort of settled and, and, and it's doing, everybody's doing okay. So sometimes the burden does fall to the caregiver to reach out and let them know communicate, as you've heard, is so important today, that, you know, although everything is better in this way, it's still very complicated in this way, and I could really use this kind of help. Um, so reaching out is still a very important aspect of what the caregivers need to do to keep themselves in the best physical and emotional place while they're going through this experience. Excellent point. Thank you. And Dr. Palos, did you want to add and, um, anything? Or? Yes, um, just to, you know, something you may, you know, People sometimes feel that they've done everything that needs to be done, and so it's like, oh, God, you know, do I try again? And, and my response would be, yes, you try again. Um, for example, um, I, I did some work with a family um, whose um, the husband and the wife uh, were trying to take care of each other. The husband is the one that was diagnosed with the cancer, and they were, you know, an elder couple. They were trying to take care of all the medications and the transportation, and they had 12 children. But the 12 children were just so, you know, used to mom and dad taking care of everything that they never assumed that mom and dad needed help with all of this. So there was a big family meeting called, and with the family meeting, they brought food and they brought the kids. Everyone was invited, and so everyone kind of sat down. And so then one of the elder persons who was the older ch children who was the spokesperson started talking about some of the things that you know their parents needed help with and it was really fascinating to see you know the people's aha at, at the meeting because so many of them did not realize that they had needed that, that help and so it came, became a family affair and in the end it, it's a long story but in the end what happened is you know they got help with the transportation they got help the children that were there decided to be creative and made posters of how to take the medication because that was one of the issues all the medications that someone was, you know, that what the patient was taking. It was hard for mom to be taking care of all of those things. So it, it became, you know, a, a really family mutual project, and, and people were very rewarded all across the ages. So sometimes people don't realize that those needs are there. So calling a family meeting, and again, another family used Skype to call a family meeting. You know, there are ways that you need to, commu you know, that you can communicate that out. I'm a big believer in, in that people want to help if given the opportunity. We just have to let them know that we need that help. So I hope that helped, and I hope that didn't, that what I've said or what we've, you've heard doesn't make you feel like, oh, I've heard it again. But part of this is just going back and doing it over and over again until you get the help that you need. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Rostopoulos, did you like to add anything as well? Um, I think uh, everything has been well covered, but I think maybe a little bit to the side of this is that uh, many of the patients uh, may actually survive the, you know, the cancer and be in a monitoring phase. That doesn't mean that they don't need uh, ongoing help and the caregivers need help. So even for survivors, um, there may still be either you know, leftover side effects that 
uh, there may be uh, still visits, still medication to take. And so I think we need to also be aware that uh, even if the cancer has been beaten, there may still be uh, needs that uh, patients and caregivers have. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Mesovitz, um, which have any thoughts about? Yeah, on, on the topic of sort of agency support or professional support after sort of the active part of cancer treatment ends, just in all honesty, there is a gap in service there in terms of the long-term or chronic caregiver in a lot of ways, but there are still some really good resources. You know, cancer care might be able to provide some really specific and goal-oriented support to help cope with specific challenges, so you can certainly call us. There's another really good organization called the American Psychosocial Oncology Society, and they can provide resources for uh, referrals to uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, social workers who do have a specific background in cancer-related distress and caregiving, and they might have the ability to work on a longer term with somebody. Um, I can give you the phone number for them. Again, it's the American Psychosocial Oncology Society, and they can be reached at 866-276-7443. So just another suggestion in terms of staying connected to professional support, even after the sort of quote-unquote active phase of caregiving ends, because it is a need. And, and it's an excellent point that everyone's made that indeed, and we thank actually Elise and Phil for bringing this up because, and, I, and it's interesting because it's an issue that comes across for caregivers and it also comes across for people living with cancer and long-term survivors as well, that there's a lot of help up front and then sometimes the help doesn't continue uh, continuously. So you have actually um, made all of us begin to think about this, um, especially during this particular month, but actually it's all throughout the year. Um, to develop some programming for really what you're really talking about the long distance long long um, long distance uh, caregivers long long term caregivers really is what we're talking about here so um, it's an excellent uh, excellent um, excellent programming needs and we will encourage you to to call cancer care and to call the other organizations and remind them about the needs that you have uh, for for continued help and and care we have some other questions from some of our online participants and um so um, a question about the uh, flu season being here and um, in terms of the caregiver and the person with cancer getting uh, flu shots. And um, so I'm wondering if um, uh, Dr. Raptopoulos, if you could address that. Um, I know there are often concerns on both people about what, what, they should, what they should do. So if you could just address this in a general way. And then we do encourage you to go back to your treating healthcare team as well, of course. Sure. Um, I think that the, the last thing uh, one needs if your uh, uh, patient or the caregiver is, is getting the flu. And so uh, I would strongly uh, you know, may advise uh, patients and caregivers to have the uh, flu vaccine. And uh, just a little specific point there that there are Two types of flu vaccine is the uh, the shot, which is the uh, inactivated vaccine, and then the nasal spray, which is largely given to children, but uh, I think is even indicated uh, for adults up to age 50. Um, we would not want to give the nasal spray because it is a live virus, even though it is diminished in its capacity. It is a live virus, and we would not want to do that. I think we're uh, we have the vaccine available in our treatment room, and anybody who wants it, uh, uh, and we encourage people to get it and, and uh, have it uh, given. Our staff is all required to uh, have the flu vaccine, except for the few people that do have documented allergies or a specific reason. Uh, but in general, there, there are very, very few contraindications. Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our participants on the call. Um, so uh, family members nearby don't offer any help caring for my mother who was recently diagnosed with cancer, especially during the holidays. Some days seem overwhelming with caregiving duties and are frustrating with the lack of help from another. Um, I'm already starting to stress about Thanksgiving. What can I do? Dr. Palos, can you address that? 
Well, the, the first thing is recognize that that stress is normal. I, I think everybody starts stressing about the holidays when they um, around the corner because we, we are a society that rushes around so much and have so many things that, that we need to do. But one of the things you can do is, again, just um, take a moment, sit down, and just kind of brainstorm and find out, ask yourself, who is it that I can help? Who are people that uh, can help me, excuse me, who are the people that can help me? And just jot down any name just you know that you can think of, any person you can think of. Don't put all the ifs and buts in there. Just put the names down. And then start kind of grouping them together and saying, okay, these folks have helped me in the past before. They may be willing to help me before, you know, again. And then identify the group that has never helped before. And then you can begin with that group because that group, again, may not know that you need the help. I really believe that many times family members assume, especially if you've been the primary caregiver for so long, that you are so efficient and so organized that you don't need the help. And so they just go, you know, on their living their lives thinking, oh, everything's being taken care of. So it, it's good to just kind of ask them to stop and pose and let them know that, yes, you are very good at what you do, but you do need the help, particularly at times like this. And it's not bad to ask about, you know, respite care. You know, there are times maybe I need a weekend to go, I, I'm going to need a weekend to go shopping for all the things for Thanksgiving. Or you can even say, you know, Thanksgiving has been here at my house all the time. Do you mind if we have it at your house? this year because I I need a break or let's give everybody a break on that. So again, that open communication is so important with with whomever it is that you're going to be asking for help. And just be very candid and frank and say, this is what I need. Would you be willing to help? And family members are sometimes very notorious for not wanting to help, but I really believe it's because they think that everything is being taken care of. So again, have that dialogue with them. That's excellent. And um, I have another question for Dr. Aftopoulos about vaccines. Um, is the same advice appropriate for shingles vaccines, shots for patient and caregivers? Again, if you can address this in a general way. Yeah. So I think that um, shingles vaccine is a little bit more problematic because it is a live uh, uh, virus vaccine. And um, in general, we do not uh, like to administer these to uh, uh, people undergoing uh, treatment that suppress the immunity. Um, so we have tended not to uh, administer that. Um, I do, I'm not aware of any studies that have uh, documented uh, these, but certainly with the very uh, severely immunosuppressive uh, treatments that would be given for leukemia or bone marrow transplant, I think it would definitely be a contraindication. Uh, lesser degrees, not clear, but we've tended to avoid. So you'd want to ask your healthcare team, and then once yeah. you've finished treatment, uh, Dr. Aftopoulos, or as a survivor, or before you start treatment, are those things that uh, are these the things you want to talk about with your physician? Yeah, so so I think the the other thing with the Zoster vaccine is not as as effective as as many of the others because it's a um, uh, when we think about what Zoster is, it's really a virus that's in your system that gets reactivated, and so now we're giving it another shot of another you know the same virus just to try and uh, pump up your immune systems. It's not as as effective as as let's say the flu vaccine is for those specific uh, flu types. Um, so you know, I, I would just tend to you know, talk about it in, on an individual basis, depending on what your situation is, rather than make a general recommendation that one should or shouldn't have it. Excellent. Thank you very much. So definitely talk with your own physicians about this to get the best uh, advice for yourself. Thank you. And we have one last question um, for um, Carly, Ms. Nesovitz. What advice can you provide to a parent caregiving for young adults with cancer? you could just address this in a general way, um, that would be probably very helpful to people. Sure. So when it comes to being a caregiver for a young adult, I think it's often helpful to remember who the young adult is, what their personality is like, what their needs have been before a cancer diagnosis came into play, and to keep that in mind as you navigate the caregiver experience. Um, sometimes that can really help to manage expectations and, and to sort of maintain the relationship as it is and make it more authentic. Um, so I think that can be a really good starting place. 
Excellent. I want to thank all of our presenters. You've just been outstanding. I want to thank all of you who have asked questions both on the phone and online, really brought up some excellent points and issues that we want to continue that dialogue. I also want to thank all of you who have been listening. I want to remind you that this is a one-hour program, and it is around caregiving. It's an important topic, and it means that that issue goes on. It goes on for a very long time, and I think as Elisa's point, Elise and Phil have pointed out, for a very long time, and so that you do need to have access to resources and support. And um, I think that um, we want you to not feel like because of the call is ending that our help to you ends. Um, so please do contact Cancer Care with any questions or concerns or needs you may have um, at 1-800-813-HOPE. We don't want anyone to leave this call thinking that you're alone in coping with cancer or with caregiving. We want you to know that you're now part of the cancer care support world and that we are here very much to help you. And so, um, and we're simply a phone call away, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. I want to thank you all for your participation today. I also want you to be very aware that we are entering into a a holiday time of year for many people, and to some extent, we want you to I hope you listened to what all of our speakers had said about, you know, I think um, this was a very interesting uh, recommendation by Dr. Palos that perhaps if you've always done things at your home that perhaps you could ask somebody else to host it this year. Um, you can scale back a bit on, on some of the expectations that you all have of each other and be kind to yourselves is most important as well. So thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.